folks. Welcome to the Creative Language Learning Podcast with Kirsten Amers. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 11 of the Creative Language Learning Podcast. I hope you're all doing very, very well. I'm kind of holding on to my voice and my strength um, while I haven't been consumed by a cold yet, but it's definitely going around. So that might be a thing that's happening to me next week. It's always really annoying to be ill, isn't it? But I don't want to keep you any longer with my complaints and my whinging and just read you a little bit of feedback that we had about the podcast uh, episode nine with Benny Lewis where we had a really good discussion going on about um, group classes and how useful they are. Uh, Chris Broholm, my uh, podcasting colleague from the Actual Fluency podcast, he uh, commented and said, I like this discussion because you defended your points very well, both of you. I'm personally not a fan of group classes either, meaning some people, it, it's unreasonable to expect a lot of people who are in the same level. And usually people will drag someone along, someone will just be lost. It can't be good for lots and lots of reasons. And so Chris kind of said, it, in terms of optimum learning time, you'd sort of lose a little bit. And, um, and a little bit of a debate on that. And there is also Emma Sibley, and she commented, hello, Emma. <laughs> One of my uh, fluent language book readers. Uh, you can have a look at my book at fluentlanguage.co.uk slash book. Uh, recently had a really lovely exchange with her. But Emma says, as someone who has taken language classes as a child in school and as an adult, I feel that there is real a real difference between being made to study a language and choosing to attend a class. As a child, I did really badly at French, but I was given no choice and I had to go to the lesson. As an adult, I learned Russian in an evening class with other adults who had also chosen to be there. It was a very different experience, even though the teaching methods were really similar. We just followed a textbook. I feel that taking the class as an adult gave me good grounding and helped with my motivation. It was also nice to meet face to face with others learning the language each week. It hasn't made me fluent, but it was a great starting point. Um, and I just want to echo both what Chris and what Emma were saying there. Um, and that is the fact that I, I agree with the group classes. And for me personally, I also go for the community. I go because I like being among other people who like language learning. Um, but yes, if you are, if you have the kind of, hello. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's my kitty. Um, if you have a desire to go to a group class and at the same time you want to be as quick and efficient as possible with your language learning, you may be disappointed. So just bear that in mind. And this will echo today in our co-hosted episode with the visitor that I have. And I won't keep you any longer. So we're just going to go straight into it. I have a guest today for the podcast and I'm talking to Ollie Richards from, okay, is it IWTYAL.com or is it IWillTeachYouAlanguage.com or is it both? It's, it's actually both, but I, you can probably guess which one came first. <laughs> is it IWillTeachYouAlanguage.com? Yeah, that's right, IWillTeachYouAlanguage.com, yeah. <laughs> tell, us about, tell us about the website. When did you start? I started the website about a year ago. Mm -hmm. uh, back in I'm not quite I'm not entirely sure when it was but summer last year so it's been going for a year and a bit um and it was yeah it kind of it, it just started off as a as a, a little kind of 
pet project. I was looking for a bit of creative outlet, and uh, that's what I that's what I settled on. So I just kind of started writing about uh, just general thoughts about language teaching, language learning, and then it kind of gradually evolved into what it is today, which is more 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 kind of focused. Are you more on... of a teacher or more of a learner? Well, I'm I'm definitely both because I I mean I I've learned a fair number of languages but I've also taught languages for quite a long time and um so I kind of I'm I'm I feel like I'm able to write about both both sides of the equation yeah. you know the, the 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 side of teaching and the side of learning but I mean I've always found a, a very big sort of disconnect between how we generally teach and how we're trained to teach and how I actually like to learn myself. So I really like exploring those kind of uh, discussions. Oh, that's really interesting that you're saying um, how you're trained to teach, because uh, I'll tell you a story. When, um, I, when I first started teaching German, and I was sort of looking around at, you know, like, what can I do? And, and um, this sort of, um, in my little, little post-job um, crisis, and kind of going, ah. Um, and decided I'm going to teach German. I specifically, I felt quite self-conscious about not having a teaching qualification. But at the same time, I knew I didn't want one because I felt like I, at that time I had learned five languages. I knew, I knew what works. And I just felt like I would rather offer somebody compassion and get to know them and focus on how they learn um, and also a one-to-one -one environment I, I, I knew I wouldn't, wasn't going to need a lot of the stuff that they teach you in a teaching qualification like classroom management. So you can probably speak to the benefits of a teaching qualification. Like, did I get it right or wrong there? <laughs> well, you, you, what, what, what I find is that, okay, well, my, my, from my understanding of the teaching, the most <clears throat> sorry, common qualifi teaching qualifications out there, and speaking specifically about um say the kind of TESOL side of things, so foreign language teaching, um, the, the, the main focus of these qualifications is getting you, <coughs> excuse me, getting you to a stage where you can, as quickly as possible, uh, start to deliver language lessons to large groups of students. Yeah. That's the, that's the whole principle. And so it's about things like, like you mentioned, classroom management. Uh, it's a, it's, but for me, the, the, the whole problem with it is that it, it ends up being a very kind of generic uh, approach to the whole language teaching thing. And it kind of takes, you know, you're always taught to think about the students as if the, as if the students were some kind of big sort of homogenous block of people. And, um, and so you end up kind of taking, you get trained to take this approach to teaching, which is very arbitrary. Mm -hmm. And then within that approach, you then kind of have to ex explore the individuals within the classroom. Yeah. And, and often when teachers get more advanced, that's when they start to actually pay more attention to the individuals in the classroom. Yeah. And so it, for me, it, it, it kind of come, comes about it all the wrong way because, as we know, it, it's all about the individuals in the classroom. It has to be about that. So I, 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 wouldn't, I don't necessarily criticize teaching qualifications for this because it's, it's just the way it has to be. The, the problem for me is this is the in, kind of environment of learning in, in, in classrooms with, with big groups of students, which is just so, um, so far away from what I've found works for me personally. Yeah, I mean this, is, this echoes um, some of the 
I had a bit of a debate with uh, Benny Lewis about whether taking a group class is, you know, ever beneficial. And he's sort of on the no side. And I'm like, no, but I have taught group classes and I've given them all my soul. I think there is a, I think there is a certain difference between being a teacher of English, which is so in demand in the world that there's this whole industry around how can I most quickly <clears throat> give people a teaching qualification. God, we're both coughing today. <laughs> um, but but all like being a teacher of German, which isn't quite as there aren't million billions in the world clamoring to learn German, so it's an ever slightly um, less formalized industry. And another thing that I noticed is that when at the time I started teaching, I did think about you know, um, and I did speak to somebody who had done a TESOL sort of in Thailand. And uh, she said to me, oh, one of the best things you taught me was English grammar, because I just didn't know that. And I thought, well, I've, you know, I, I love grammar. I, can, I have done grammar to death, and I like teaching grammar, and I like grammar already. I don't need to take a course to understand how grammar works. Um, and that was the other side of it. So there is... Yeah, I mean, I think just on that point, I think, mm. I think oh, I mean, clearly language classes can be beneficial. Absolutely. I mean, it's not like, I mean, they can also be, be detrimental, I think, but, uh -huh. but clearly a, a well-taught lesson that, meet, that meets your needs can be beneficial. I think the question is, and it's, 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 it's good that you mentioned that because actually, I'm actually writing a, an article at the moment and I've been really struggling with it because I'm sort of trying to, because you can come at this from so many different angles and I'm, and I'm been trying to kind of summarise this whole issue about whether language classes are beneficial or not. And... Um, and I, for me, really, what, what the whole thing comes down to is, can you, not only, it's not really a question of is it beneficial, but is it a, an efficient way of doing things, you know, i.e., could you do it better on your, by, you know, by yourself, on your own? And then, secondly, is it really, does it justify the cost? I think those are the two, the two issues. Ah, and, the cost, and, that's an interesting perspective as well, because... Again, from a private teacher's perspective, uh, my group classes were so much cheaper than my one-to-ones, you know, because I could afford to be a little bit cheaper because I had more people paying for the same time. Yeah, but, but whereas you're comparing the, the group classes to your one-to-one -to -one lessons, which were obviously more, more costly, I mean, I was, when I was saying that, I'm thinking of comparing the cost of group lessons to the cost of doing it by yourself, which is obviously um, free. And, yeah, although and, uh, much, well, I don't know, I can't speak for everybody, but from all my teaching observations, it's slower. It's definitely slower. It's got to be. Would you say it's slower than, I mean, so learning by yourself is slower than learning yeah. with, a, with, a, with a private tutor or learning by yourself is slower than, than taking classes? Um, from all the observations I've had, and I had the benefit of taking a, for example, a complete beginning one-to-one -one student at the same time as starting a group class, um, and I could really tell that with her I could just progress faster because, we, you know, we just had more time to repeat stuff. It just all round was quicker. Um, so I would say if you're after, not that fast progress is ever what you should sort of chase after, but if you want to, if progress and linear progress following say a textbook or something like that um and acquiring language you know as much as you can as quickly as possible is is what you're after i would say um and this is from personal experience and again everybody's everybody's different but i would say one-to-one -one is quicker than group class 
which depending on who you are, how productive and motivated and good, you know, like informed you are about language in general, group class can be slower than one-to-one -one or can be faster. But it's, I, I always felt it was less work. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it stands to reason that that one-to-one um, -one tuition is going to be faster than group classes simply because you've got that individual attention. You mm -hmm. know, you whereas a, a, the, because of the basic problem with group classes is that a teacher has to spread her attention amongst five, ten, fifteen, twenty different people. So it stands to reason that one-to-one uh, -one tuition is going to be faster. But I mean, part of my my thinking of this is that most people probably can't afford or aren't willing to spend money on private tuition. And not that they shouldn't, I think, it, they, I think they absolutely should, but uh, a lot of people can't afford private tuition. So really the, the question for many people comes down to either, you know, do I do it by myself or do I um, take group classes? Because group classes are the more affordable option. So from my experience of um, of teaching group classes for, for, for many years. What I found more often than not, and this is the whole cause, of, this is really the whole cause of concern for me for group classes, is that the, in general, the people who take group classes are those people who, who are not willing to study by themselves. On the whole, I'm making a big generalization here, but people will, take, will often take group classes because for some reason they feel like they can't do it by themselves. Yeah, yeah. And so what I found is that by often by going and taking group classes, what the student is doing is, in a sense, abdicating the responsibility for learning and handing it over to the teacher. So they'll, take a, a, they'll have a perspective of, okay, teacher, here's my money, now teach me, now teach me French. Oh, yeah. And so what happens is people, people end up going to their group classes you know, once, twice, three times a week and expecting to learn the language during that time and saying, well, you know, I really don't have time to do homework. I'm really busy. And also I'm going to these classes, so that's enough. I think it's comparatively rare to find people that will, 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 will go to group classes, you know, once or twice a week and then spend even more time outside studying. Because the attitude of so many people that take group classes is that it's, it's I'm, I'm handing over my, I'm paying for a professional service. I'm paying to be taught the language. And this is the time in the week that I'm dedicating to language learning. Whereas I'm sure you'd agree with me that really, the, although you, you can learn during a class environment, when, when you really learn stuff is when you go back and you review it and you look at it in your own time and you have time to process it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think I don't, I don't consider myself even a, a, a teacher really. Like when I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of work with other online teachers on, you know, both on our marketing and kind of, you know, confidence work, coaching work. And I very often say to people, you know, you can't teach people anyway. You can't teach people. People learn. And what we do is facilitate that and put them in a room and be there when they are doing that learning process. And the learning process is connected with questions. And, you know, it automatically makes you go, oh, okay, so this, is, this works like this then. And I want to try this out. And that's what a teacher's job is, to be there when the person wants to try it out. Which is why I agree with you that a, a, a large group... In language teaching, certainly, oh my God, it's, it's just not, it's just not right. And this is from somebody who loved languages at school and was always, you know, sort of top of the class. Yeah, you, I mean, you're, I think the, the fundamental job of the teacher is to raise awareness of, is to raise the learner's awareness of certain aspects of the language that they're learning, such that they can then go home and continue the learning themselves 
more aware than they were before. Mm-hmm. And that's extremely difficult to do when you've got 15 other people in the class because, because you can't work with individuals to understand where they're at and show them the next step because you, you just can't do that with, 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 with so many people in the class. And so this is where this kind of generic idea of the student comes in and people, teachers, when, you know, when they're planning lessons, they, they, people tend to think far too much of the teaching and not enough about the learning. And it's because the learning in a group of 16 students is such a difficult thing to define because everyone's at different stages. Mm. Okay, so this leads me on, this leads so nicely. Oh, I'm so excited. Okay, this leads on really, really nicely into our articles of the week. So I'll, I'll start off um, and the article that I suggested um, both of both of what we were talking about is um, we're both, funnily enough, you know, we're teachers uh, focusing on education systems and education in uh, institutional, shall we say, formal environments in the US and the UK. So my article was one that I found in the Guardian, a UK article, and this was about. Um, the UK qualifications in foreign languages. The university entry-level qualification in the UK is called an A-level, and um, you probably took some A-levels, so... I mean, certainly with the, with the A-levels, you will study three of them for two years. Mm-hmm. Full on. Yeah, and that's, you know, exactly, it's full on. But it's definitely different to, like, how, how you know, we did it in, in Europe, in Germany, um, where, you know, you study everything. You get some choices on what you want to do more of, um, but for example, I studied English, my f- foreign language English for me, foreign language French. Um, then I had to take politics to make up some equal thing, and then I had to, I had to take either biology or maths because they want you to cover all the subject areas. So they make sure you've got a general knowledge in your education level, which in the UK, after the GCSE level, you can drop that. So yes, exactly. Having yeah. said all that. <laughs> all that background um this this actual article is about what, what i found really interesting it's a um what they're saying is well there's people coming out of a levels who who can't really speak a language except for being able to parrot repeat phrases which is one of my biggest uh rants and bugbears about education in in you know like so let's say english speaking countries you you kind of i feel like people come if the, if language is taught in that way and you just have all these stock sentences that you can use you pretty much come out feeling powerless even after five years of language learning and that sucks and the other interesting thing about this is i'm going to read this out it says um the youth voices research council um so did a did a study and it says the numbers of students taking the languages is falling and that there is a generation perhaps surprisingly open to the prospect of language learning. So people who are 14 to 24 in the UK, they are, they are interested, they do want to do it, but they are deeply underconfident in their ability to put their language studies into practice. So the problem isn't people aren't interested, the problem is people think it's too hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, yeah. Um, do you want me to react to that? But do you do you do you feel like reacting to that? I feel like reacting to that. Hell yeah! <laughs> I mean, yeah. I wasn't sure whether you were going to sort of uh, go on to more in the article, but but yeah. I mean, there's so many. Oh God, where do you start? Where where do you start with that? Just have a big uh, rant, is what I do. Yeah. 
Well, it, well, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, and the in, well, the interesting thing I think I thought about this was as you as you said, there were lots of people that were open to the prospect of of learning a foreign language. Four out of ten people at that age thought it would improve their job prospects. Seven out of ten said that they actually did want to learn a language in the future, which is pretty good. And so that all comes back to, as you said, you know, what, how, do you, how do you study? And not unsurprisingly, 50% of them said that grammar is hard, and 40% of them said memorizing vocab is hard, which mm-hmm. kind of suggests that that is, that is the main um, thrust of the teaching style there, grammar and vocabulary. Yeah, although, I mean, you know, grammar and vocabulary, it's... it's... It is hard. It's not well. No, it's not hard, hard, hard. But it's not easy. And maybe that's the thing people expect easy. Well, I mean, because what's the problem with it being hard? You're in school. It's 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 good. Things are meant to be hard. Yeah, I mean, I think really. Okay, so fifty percent say grammar is hard. Mm-hmm. But maybe what would be more accurate is to say, well, grammar is hard, and I'm expected to remember all of it. So therefore, I'm 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 getting a bit depressed about it. That is true, actually. Like, they, you can say it's hard, but it's really interesting. Or you could say it's hard, but I don't need... I mean, this, and this is the thing. If you were going to take a, a different approach to teaching mm-hmm. or to, to just dealing with the language at all, then you don't necessarily need to talk about grammar at all or, or maybe only only a little bit. Mm-hmm. So if, you, if you're working with just purely, um, I don't know, different kinds of media surrounding the student's interest in the language then you might not even need to talk about grammar. So uh, grammar is, I mean, what, what I'm seeing here is that grammar and vocab- memorizing vocabulary, okay, sure, they're hard. We know that they're hard, but they're obviously being focused on, they're, they're in the spotlight. And part of the learning and the teaching that goes on there is saying that you have to learn this grammar, you have to memorize this vocabulary. Yeah. But if you, if you took that out of the equation and said, right, you don't have to memorize that grammar, you don't have to memorize that vocabulary, then suddenly students aren't going to feel... They're not going to have that knock to their motivation. Mm-hmm. And how would you go about that? Like if you, okay, so I guess you don't test. Let's assume that people don't test on, you know, strict vocabulary, you know, like rote, um, like regurgitation where you just kind of do a, a quiz and you just go, what does this word mean? What does that word mean? And you don't do, what's the ending for second person plural and, and all that stuff. So if we cut all that out. What what do you do instead? What would you recommend? Well, I mean, listen, I'm I don't feel like I'm I'm qualified to recommend. Uh, Doesn't matter. Ha- we're, not, you know, we're not government. The UK we're education system should work. And, and I've thought about this. I've thought about this a lot. And I don't. I mean, it's it's a very very difficult thing to do because it comes back to the point of what's the function of the education system and the education system as it's currently set up. You know, without going down this whole this whole rabbit hole, but it's designed to lead people into university. Yeah. The whole the whole education system is is designed to to basically get people into um, jobs in the city. That's essentially how the whole thing is set up, and the whole the whole the whole financial system um, is is propped up by the whole education by the education system, which leads people into those into those jobs. It's a very kind of linear thing, and that's fine if it's if it's maths or something that can be learnt in a in a kind of structured way. But as we know. Uh, you know, language learning is not not like that, and so the you know you've got to if you if you if you start off by I think it's great that lots of 
of these students who were interviewed said that they want to learn. That's fantastic. But I think you've got to assume that most of them don't. Because I certainly didn't when I was, you know, 14, 15. Uh, it wasn't until I was much older that I started to take an interest in it. And you've got to be able to teach in a way that, that, that reaches the majority. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you just end up leaving everyone behind. So and what, did this, what was your switch in motivation? Well, I just got, I just got older. You know, I just grew up a little bit. Mm. And your world grew, I presume. Well, exactly. I started, I started, I know I left the UK or started traveling abroad. Um, but obviously, you know, we're, we're talking about kids at school here. So you've got to, you've got to be, be realistic about how motivated they can be about uh, to learn a foreign language. The, the Joint Council for Qualifications said that students are inspired to learn a language by the idea of speaking. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I thought that that was very strange because some people may be, but there, are, there might be just as, as many other people who are, who are inspired to learn a language from, from different things. I mean, I know in America, for example, there are loads of, loads of kids who get really into Japanese manga. Yeah. And it's, it's, and it's not because they want to go out and start speaking Japanese. It's because they like the manga. And when I was, when I was learning English, um, and I always think back to, you know, I had to learn English and French at school. Um, and I wanted to do French because I had already identified as a language person from when I did English. Um, but I never, like, I was, there was a school exchange where everybody went to France. I didn't even go because I didn't want to speak to people. I just wanted to find out more. But study from a distance and it was more of a fascination with the different cultures and the same as what you're describing for manga it's you know i was into <laughs> forever embarrassing i was i was i was into Britpop, and i was into uh yeah. you know like english bands and stuff and i was yeah. into music so that was my way to english but i didn't i could have cared less about speaking english well yeah well exactly and and so i think the point is that you've got to somehow try to tap into kids motivations and their interests and and you know the modern language teaching is all about the communicative approach about communicative language teaching methodologies but how can we get people to speak but i mean you know when i was when i was that age i i'm not the kind i wasn't the kind of person that really wanted to speak that wanted to go out and meet loads of people and talk and i think this obsession over getting people to speak is is a is a is a is a dangerous thing especially at that age you know i know i mean i write a, a whole blog that's all about all i talk about is getting people to speak but that that's that, that's kind of different because people yeah. come to find my blog because they want to start speaking and but so also I kind of, if you're a self-learner it speaking has a whole different uh, you know i think if you're teaching yourself a language speaking has a whole different it's like the thing that you you actually hope for and aim towards because it's so practical and tangible but if you're in school you know, you're already kind of speaking. You're pronouncing in front of other people so much more. Yeah, I mean, the, the people learn languages for all kinds of different reasons. And at that age especially, then speaking, I think, is is, is not... It's, it's far from being a foregone conclusion that everybody really wants to speak. And so you, you, I think you just need to tap into their to people's interests. And it might be the case... I mean, I, I remember watching a video by Steve Kaufman talking about exactly this, which I thought, uh, well, he said something that was, that was brilliant, which was that it, it may be the case that getting kids in the education system to speak is, is completely the wrong way to go about it. 
And so then instead, it might actually be better to do nothing but, say, reading and writing for five years. Because if, if they feel more able to engage with that side of the language, then they're going to have a much, they're going to be much more, much, they're going to be much better, have a much deeper knowledge of the language after five years of studying it than if we're constantly trying to get them to sort of parrot out phrases and, and speak and, and just communicate for the sake of it, because we think that communicating... Oh. This makes me so happy to hear all this. I think there's all. Yeah, I've just, I've just written a blog article this week about writing and about how writing is this kind of unsexy, uncool skill and nobody's really interested in it. And I'm like, if you learn how to write and spell properly, you will automatically speak better because you'll be able to pronounce things. There are things that, that I see and you are so right. There is so much there in this um attitude and then I'm going to take it to the article that you suggested because which is about the US system I'm just going to pick out this um, little section and then ask you to talk about it a little bit more but this, sure. this leads over so nicely so speaking of um, moving away from the communicative approach and making it more about you know language being alive I guess but not alive through you know like I must I must say something, I must say something, but actually being alive in the sense of being useful for the sake of a, you know, a life of the person. So it says, um, for instance, so I'm quoting, instead of having isolated courses called Spanish or Arabic in American schools, we should disperse language instruction across the curriculum. One way to achieve this and at the same time make language learning more engaging would be to send younger students to specialty classes such as music, art or gym taught in a foreign language. How cool! Yeah, and 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 this, this is already happening in lots of places around the world. I've seen uh, sort of videos recently of uh, projects run by the British Council in Spain, where kids are taking some of their, for example, science classes in English right from the beginning, and you see these kids. Uh, speaking English by the age of eight or nine, you would not believe how fluent they are. It's absolutely scary how articulate and fluent they are. I mean, they've still got an accent, the Spanish accent, and they still make mistakes, but they're able to express themselves incredibly um, easily and accurately about all kinds of complex issues at the age of, uh, of eight or nine. So, so yeah, I mean, you're, so this is, the, the idea of this is what's currently known as CLIL, C-I-L, sorry, yes. C-L-I-L, which is Content and Language Integrated Learning. That's right, yeah. And... And the, as you said, the concept is basically that you stop teaching the language as a subject by itself. Okay, let's learn French, let's learn French grammar, and instead teach other things using the language. So you teach, say, science in French, or you teach maths in Chinese. That would be fun. Um, and I think there are, there are all kinds of issues around this, but, um, but that is... It's one of the biggest shifts in the in the in the in in, in the sort of conceptualization of language teaching that's taken place over the last few years, and I think it's it's hugely powerful. We've got lots of potential, but it's also I mean a long way off. You know, from that to become to become mainstream is going to take all kinds of shifts in in, in ideology. And I think the the um, say non-declarative subjects that they listed here, music, art, and gym, are particularly good for that because you can perform well in those kind of subjects through more than just um, expressing language like teaching maths in in Chinese is probably super challenging but music you can kind of get it and it's playful and it has a different it has a different impact and um, certainly my interest from English in English um, was 
incited way before I was ever even taking formal English lessons because when I was seven or eight in primary school we sang If You're Happy and You Know It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a cre creative, creative subjects, right? I mean, music, art. Yeah. I mean, creativity and language learning are so closely linked that I think no, it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic idea. I just, just, I just wonder what it would take for uh, for people to, for for uh, governments and policymakers to actually go down that route, yeah. mainstream it, and because you've, the biggest challenge is um, having a skilled teachers, because if you're gonna have, if you're gonna roll this out. Uh, across a wide, nationwide, for example, you know, where are the teachers going to come from? Where are you going to find art teachers who are fluent in Spanish, for example? Absolutely. Uh, and so what they did in Spain, for example, was they actually sent, this was the biggest challenge of all, and it was such a big challenge that many people didn't get on board and it almost derailed the whole project. So they had to start off small scale, but they ended up sending teachers to the UK to raise their level of, um, of English specifically to enable them to teach the subjects that they were going to teach in English. And uh, so it's a huge, it's an absolutely uh, massive project and a total shift in, in, in ideology. Yeah. Uh, and my, and it, my, it stops my, looking my, at language as a separate subject and also makes it much more of a, a part of your life. Because, you know, as a, as a teacher of something as well, that's not the only thing in your life. So you do have other interests. And I can imagine how enriching that would be to teachers. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine how cool that would be? It was just, it's just, just brilliant. But I think the main concern is, is it's got to be consistent. And so, you know, so I can imagine a scenario when kids start having one class a week in, in uh, one art class a week in French and then for one term. And then next term they have one music class in Spanish. And it just becomes this kind of piecemeal thing. I think it's got to be consistent and it's got to be, you know, just, just as when you're learning a language independently, you, um, it's... More than more than learning it, you just have to get used to it, right? Yeah. Over time, and it's exactly the same. We would be exactly the same for these kids. They've got to start. They would have to, you know, if you just learn art in Spanish for one term, it, it's just a novelty, right? But you need to stop seeing it as a and see it as an actual part of your of your life, of your school life, and your education. Mm -hmm. And that's when it really starts to take on a different, to have a different impact in your own learning. So um, after okay, after having put the world to rights. Um, I do. There is one. There is one point that, that you know you sort of made earlier about motivation, and one of the things I wanted to kind of chat to you about is that originally how I became aware of you and your your blog is that you commented on an article that I wrote a while ago about polyglots and about the polyglot um, uh, uh, pissing contest. Sorry, um, <laughs> not a PG, yeah. not a PG thing anymore. <laughs> But, uh, you know, so the, the polyglot competition um, that I kind of see and the, the you know, the, the, the pressure to keep up. But as you were talking about motivation, in, in, you know, especially in younger people, because um, one of the questions I wanted to ask you and I was asking myself is why is being a polyglot so attractive? You know, like why, why are people actually into it? What is it about becoming um, fluent in several or, you know, proficient in several languages that people are so into? Um, and maybe the YouTube polyglots are actually encouraging to younger people so what's your what's your whole take on on all that because i know that you had a much more positive attitude than me about it at the time yeah i mean this is i i, I find this whole discussion really confusing to be honest because i i i i think it's one of these things that as it as it's become a kind of social phenomenon as you like on youtube it's kind of gathered a bit of um people start analyzing it and 
labeling it and naming it and all these things and suddenly you've, you've got to find yourself being labeled in these different ways but i mean i i i don't really recognize this whole this whole thing of um of the of what's being labeled as the kind of polyglot community um because it's i've never i didn't even i've never i've never used that word in my life for example until i started my blog and I, and then people i saw people started to link to videos and stuff and calling me a polyglot and stuff like that i really don't care it's not it's not something i think about i mean i've i've only ever learned languages because of the because of my my environment because of where i've been living and um and the people around me and because of my own my own self interest and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of struggle to see the negatives in that, really. I guess the negatives, if you, if you want to look for them, would be if you start to see lots of people doing that and you, you, could, you could read into that and say, well, he he's, speaks more languages than him or he, he's got a better pronunciation than him or, or whatever. Mm. I, just, I honestly just don't give a, a toss about that stuff. I just, I just do my thing. And, um, you know, videos serve a purpose which is i mean you know let's be honest putting videos up they do a number of things they they in a, in a noisy world where a million and one people are all trying to say things you need to establish credibility in some respects and you know frankly if i didn't have any videos of me speaking different languages people would say well who the hell are you to tell me what i should be doing so there's that side of it you have to you have to show that you that you know what you're talking about but also it's incredibly motivational for a lot of people and um for every person who may say well you know you're just sort of showing off on youtube i could point to 10 other people who have, who would write in and say oh my god that's so motivating i'm going to go off and study now because i want to do that too mm-hmm. so yeah i you can people can label it as much as they want but ultimately it is what it is and uh, I, I don't really think about it any more <laughs> any more than that yeah, I mean it is, it is reasonably limited to YouTube, which which I find quite reassuring, and perhaps that's part of why my my kind of um, particular perspective on it, because I'm just not naturally on YouTube a lot. I don't really watch YouTube, so you know it's always difficult to kind of comment on an environment that you don't really understand, and you know. Um, but certainly when I when I hear the word hyper polyglot, there's just something inside my stomach that makes me go, ugh. Oh yeah, me too. But 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 don't you know? But don't take that and kind of tarnish the whole the whole thing it just it, it seems like something that's not i don't really see it as something that is worth the time to 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 to, to kind of debate about really because you know here we are talking about how can we encourage the education systems education systems to 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 how can we get education systems to promote language and to get more people to learn languages and then you know here's here you've got a phenomenon where people are demonstrating that it's possible that normal people can just go off and learn lots of languages i mean mm. i i really don't see any negatives in that at all yeah. and, and okay i mean obviously you can bring you can end up finding some if you want but you know there's a lot of a lot of a lot of shit stuff going on in this world and, and it's not this yeah. is not <laughs> this is really not one of them no i think i think my main issue with it was literally just the the, the collecting of you know uh, another one and another one and another one i think it devalues the, the how beautiful it is to just know one other language you know and how much that is worth in itself um but it, it kind of coming back to what do you think why is why is the idea why do people find it so inspiring why is being a polyglot so 
attractive? Because that's a really good thing. I don't know, to be honest, because I never, th- I never kind of woke up and thought I want to be a polyglot. I just uh, and just learnt languages one after the other, mm-hmm. one one you know one year after the next, and um, so I've never done it because of some desire to. Um, to, to speak lots of languages. I mean, I learned, I first started learning French because I went to live in Paris and uh, later I learned Spanish in London because I had lots of Spanish friends and then the same with Portuguese. And then I went, I lived in Japan, so I learned Japanese and then um, mm. now I'm living in, in Egypt, so I'm learning Arabic. Maybe that uh, is I mean, part of why it's so attractive because travel is so desirable and it's, you know, language and travel is always kind of linked. Yeah, although I just, I would say that, um, it doesn't have to be exclusively to travel because I mean, lots of people don't have the opportunity to travel. And, um, I, I, I always like to like to point out the fact that I learned half of more over the, over half of the languages I speak, I learned whilst not being in the a country where that language is spoken. Um, so I don't think it's a travel thing. I think it's a, it's a, just a, a life thing. And for me, <clears throat> the inspiration for learning the languages that I did always came from people around me. Uh, I was really fortunate when I was going to university in London to have friends from lots of different places. It was a very international university where I was and, uh, specifically friends from Spain and friends from Brazil. And they, they kind of meant so much to me that that was sufficient motivation for me to learn their language. Um, and, so yeah, that that that's all it's ever been for me, and uh, I, th- I, th- I there probably are people out there who collect languages if you, if you like and just add one after the other. Um, but again, I I wouldn't be able to tell you whether they they do that because that's what they want to do, or whether that's just other people looking at them and inferring from that that it's that it's a kind of trophy thing. I mean, it's difficult to say which one it is, but but again, it, I mean, they people like that would draw attention because they because it's impressive. But again, it, it's it's um, yeah, I, I just I don't think it's uh, necessarily representative of um, of the wider language learning community. Mhm, mhm. Yeah, that's that's true. I just I don't know. I think I think it's great that it's attractive, and I think it's there's definitely to me learning a foreign language is always kind of associated with dreaming and sort of you know like there's there's like this real. It's great. You know, the reason I learned a language is is maybe maybe unlike you because you you come at it from a very pragmatic point of view obviously. Mm. Um whereas to me it's always this kind of I love dreaming in a way. You know, I love I love just thinking about oh, you know, and and you know, I, I when I learn something new to say, I almost imagine myself like I'm I'm stood in Russia saying this Russian thing, you know, and and I just really love I love the the way it it allows me to dream bigger, if that makes sense. Yeah, and what, I guess what you're what you're describing is a very personal relationship with with with, with languages, and, and I think that's what it is. That's what it is for everybody, really, um, and it certainly is for me. I mean, my you know, I I I'm learning Arabic at the moment because, as I said, I'm I'm living in Egypt, but I've just moved from from Qatar where I was living in Qatar for for a year and a half which is um, also an Arabic speaking country and yet I I learned virtually no Arabic whilst I was there and the reason is that um, I is Qatar's the kind of place where you you can you 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 cannot be friends with locals because the 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 society is such that it's 
locals and expats are very kind of separated. And so I had no intrinsic motivation whatsoever for learning Arabic. I, I did try, and it was mainly out of pride that I tried to learn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, because I was living in, a, in an Arabic-speaking country, so I thought, well, I should at least make the effort, right? But that just fell flat on its face because I had no motivation to do it. I wasn't intrinsically interested. Qatari uh, Arabic itself is really, really um, uh, peripheral and not at all representative of, has, has very little to do with Arabic of, uh, of from other parts of the Arab-speaking world. And yet, having come to Egypt, suddenly I'm, I've got lots of local friends and I know loads of um I'm meeting people all the time who speak Egyptian Arabic, who are Egyptian, who who I now have a personal relationship with, and that inspires me to learn. And that is, that's what makes it impossible for me not to 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 learn. You know, it's, I literally feel it's impossible for me not to be learning Arabic and studying it at the moment because it just means so much to me to be able to communicate with people in their in their language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so. And so it is, it is a really personal thing. But, but the thing is that for many people, for people who haven't got to that stage yet, for people who haven't had that experience of being able to successfully learn a language, you still, you, you, they, I think, risk missing out on even experiencing that feeling. And so part of what I try to do with things like videos and, 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 and blog articles and things like that is to, is to get people from the stage of, you know what, it would be really cool to learn a language to wow, actually, I can see that it's possible. And you know, here's someone else doing it, and here's what he's suggesting in order to do that. Yeah. So I, I think there is, a, there is a real, although you know, we've talked before about how it's very difficult to, um, to be prescriptive about language learning because we all learn in different ways. That's absolutely true. But we've all, there's also got to be a role for getting people from the zero beginner stage to a place where they can, they can get their first taste of being able to use use the language and communicate with the language. Yeah, and that's that's my goal. That's what I'm aiming to do is to get people from from the stage of zero to having that taste and then being able to then go off on their own after that. Yeah, and then think back to you know what, what earlier we were talking about with the school system. How cool it would be to just have all these people and they're not coming to you cold. And they're not coming to language learning like cold when they're 12 or something because they've already sung songs or, you know, uh, described a painting or, or like, you know, t- t- talked about colors in a foreign language. But it's just like, it's just not alien anymore. You know, it's just, it's foreign, but it's not alien. And that, oh my God, how good would that be? <laughs> <laughs> We've got some work to do, huh? <laughs> yeah, no biggie, no biggie. Yeah. Right, okay, I am going to introduce the tips of the week and how this works is i have collected three language learning tips um you're gonna laugh about what they are (laughs) okay i've collected three language learning tips and they're all three really fabulous and that i've sort of found around the internets this week and as a guest it is your um honorable duty to pick your favorite and tell us why fantastic so the language tips of the week tip number one Use online self-tests as check-ins, not tutorials. And this is uh, in relation to self-teaching softwares, things like Duolingo. And instead, uh, and the principle of this is really to go back to something like Duolingo or a lot of online self-tests every now and then, test yourself and check where you're up to if you're a self-teacher, but don't use them as your exclusive tutorials. Um, so make the you know ch- change your attitude to these kind of online courses. Uh, number two is the maker's classroom. 
<laughs> hilariously exactly what we talked about. Um, so the maker's classroom, like for example at Raw Learning, which is um, a school in the USA, private school, and they have implemented foreign languages in the classroom in lots of other ways. Um, they use foreign recipes, um, there was mention of sewing patterns, and I was thinking about, you know, adults, um, how can you can you, how can you have the maker's classroom in your own home? Uh, you could follow foreign recipes quite easily. Uh, you could, you know, sewing patterns, I think, is a great idea. Um, or um, I was even thinking about directions, but maybe not on your sat nav. <laughs> and um, tip number three is join Palermo, a virtual town that teaches languages. So Palermo is a new website where the language choice is absolutely immense and it is conceptualized like a little virtual town that you can join. There's forums, there's links, um, there's flashcards, everything that you could possibly desire about online language learning kind of in one place. So we have self-tests as check-ins, not tutorials, the maker's classroom and joining Palermo. Oh my God, where do we start? Uh, okay, what, what was number one again? <laughs> the online self-tests as check-ins, not tutorials. Um, <laughs> uh, you, you've, picked, you've picked three that I really, I, not re I think I'm really going to struggle with. Online stuff, um, so you're talking about, say, Duolingo and, and what other... Yeah, for example, Duolingo, but also um, various grabber websites will usually have little sort of, you know little tutorials and then with a little test afterwards so for example make sure you've got the endings right in this uh, past tense form well listen i have never found these i mean these these online testing teaching type websites to be of any use whatsoever uh i find them and this is just for me. I know I know people love Duolingo and, and, and these things, but I just find it to be very, very peripheral and just not um, not addressing what you really need. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you my my only criteria would be this: if you do it and you find it motivating, then fine. That's it. I'm afraid that's all I've got. Uh huh. Yeah. But I, I, you know, I guess it comes back to a need for progress and a need to feel that you're progressing or not, right? To, to kind of know whether you've, you've, um, whether you're further along than you were before. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I just, I, I really struggle to see a lot of the time how that really relates to what you really would want to know. I mean, I. I always try to encourage people to not track their progress mm -hmm. because I find that it's just, it's a bit of a fool's errand because progress is just, it's, it's just not linear and it's not, you can't anticipate how your brain will retain information and, and, and when you will learn stuff. So, you know, if you're trying to learn a bunch of grammar for an exam, then yeah, that you may find these online things helpful. Um, I mean, Generally, the, the principle of kind of testing yourself is that you want to test yourself on, on specifically on the things that you've been studying. So I'd say that if you're studying using, say, Duolingo, then test yourself using it. But to, um, to study using other methods and then randomly test yourself um, on, on, a, on a different platform, I, I, I just I fail to see the point, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, 
the online self-tests is, you know, they are peripheral, treat them as peripheral. Now, that leaves us with two tips, and that is, number two, the maker's classroom, and number three, joining Palermo, the virtual town that teaches languages. Right, so the maker's classroom, if I understood what, what, you, what you explained, it, is how can we be creative at home using the, the, uh, the target language? Is that yeah, it? yeah. Um, it always comes back to your interests. You can, you can do anything. You can, you can handle material that's way above your level or something you've never come across before if, you've got, if it's interesting for you because the motivate, your motivation to tackle it and to, and to understand it will, will be there and that will push you through. So, there's all, I mean, it comes back to doing what, what you're interested in. I, I tend not to do a lot of these kind of creative things at home because I'm much more, as you, as you probably gathered, I'm much more about kind of just very direct learning and I enjoy speaking so I speak to people and I will, I'll use I'll use. I tend to use uh, instructional material like text, textbooks and websites to actually learn. And then I'll go and put it into practice and I'll speak. Any other time that I've got, I'll do things like watch um, movies that I'm interested in, uh, read books or magazines and things that I'm interested in. I'm not the kind of person who will typically kind of spend time making stuff at home. So it's not, not really the kind of thing that I would do personally. However, I think it's a fantastic thing to do. And, um, and again, if it's something that people are interested in, then I say, absolutely, absolutely go for it and, um, and do it as using as much of the target language as possible. If you can use that, that kind of, um, activity to immerse yourself in the language, then, you know, 100%, I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. Right. Which leaves us with the last tip. <laughs> You're only meant to pick a favorite, really. <laughs> Just... Oh, was that it? I thought, I thought you wanted me to comment on all of them. <laughs> you can do. <laughs> I, I will still ask what your favourite is. Oh, okay, the thanks. last one was uh, joining Palermo, um, which is a language learning website, basically. Right, so I thought you wanted me to sort of go through and give my reaction to each of them. Uh, well, I don't have no idea what Palermo is, um, so I'm really not in a position to say. I'm okay, <laughs> right. <laughs> what, what's your favourite? <laughs> Um, well, it had to be number two, I guess, because I don't like number one, and I don't think about number three. So. Okay, so number so, two is our tip of the week for yeah, what it's worth. Uh, so this must have been your best ever tip of the week section. Oh, this is amazing. <laughs> this is gold. Well, it's certainly the most informative, definitely. Um, so, yeah, if you're going to do anything, all of which is kind of rubbish, according to Ollie, um, if you're going to do anything at all... <laughs> Just speak. Just go out and speak. <laughs> so, yeah. Or, I, mean, I don't know, because I... All right, I'm only, I'm I being really liked that one. I really liked the um, raw learning, following foreign recipes. I recently saw on the internet... Oh, I like it. I like it too. I think it's a great idea. I couldn't find it anywhere anymore, but I found this link, and it's amazing. It's this thing. It's like a little... Um, uh, like a spoon, you know, like a measuring spoon that you can use while you're cooking. Um and it displays, it's got, it's very sort of Japanese, whizzy, techy. Um, in the handle, it's got a little screen and it displays the recipe to you in foreign. And it's got a dictionary built in as well. Wow. How cool is that? Yeah, that's pretty Christmas cool. Christmas list. Yeah. <laughs> so from that, from that, I kind of, you know, took that really in. And I, I, just, I have previously had a student and she's, she was so awesome. She came to one of my lessons and as homework, self-assigned, um, she had translated a whole recipe to German 
and it was just fantastic. And then we, you know, like the, the next thing that you then do realistically is, you know, stop correcting the mistakes. I should have just gone, all right, okay, let's do it. Well, yeah. You know, let's make some cake. Um, yeah, but what's, what you've done there is you've found someone who's got a passion and who, who knows what they like and you've linked the language to what they like. And that's, that's the name of the game. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's really, you know, like it's not, okay, yeah. If you are not into cooking or if you're not into sewing, don't do it in foreign. Well, yeah, and, uh, you know, the worst piece of language learning advice ever, which, which is also one of the most common pieces of language learning advice you ever hear is, you should read children's books because they're easy. Mm-hmm. I, well, I've lost count of the number of times people have recommended that to me. But I just think it's, it's a classic example of how, I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't read children's books in English. I wouldn't enjoy it if I did. So if someone's saying to me, go and read children's books in Spanish because they're easy to understand, it's, it's, it's the worst idea under the sun because it, it, you're, you're, you're associated trying to do things that you wouldn't really do yeah. in a different language. And it's just a recipe for disaster. It echoes um, something I spoke about pre- or I spoke to Andre Klein about when he was on the podcast. And he's a, he writes language learning books, um, but he writes stories in simple language. So he doesn't write t- um, textbooks. He writes language learning stories, German stories Brilliant. in yeah. simple German. And what he recommended was short stories. And I thought that was really, really good. Yes. And some of my students recently found some. And I really, I was really impressed because the language is simple. And it is kind of, it's a story in itself. And it sort of prompts discussion. So I'm going to put this thing in the show notes that um, my student recommended to me. It's, it's a German short story collection. And you kind of have to buy it used on the internet because it's not out anymore. But it's called Der Weg zum Lesen. You know, reading is so good. It's such a great thing to do that, um, yeah, I think if you can find, find books that you're interested in, especially if they've been simplified slightly to, to, to closer match your level. There's lots of these available in English, not so many in other languages. But, um, yeah, anything that gets you reading is, is, is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So Andre's books I can definitely recommend for um, German and one thing, okay, it's a children's book, but we did read it in French classes, and I did enjoy it, and it was uh, Le Petit Nicolas et les Copains. But also bear in mind that France and Belgium are the countries of comic books, so if you happen to be a French learner, try out the La Bonne Dessinée, the, the, the comic books, because I always found them quite, um, you know, they, they combine, they tell you the story in a, in a different way as well, because they have a lot of pictures in, so you can still make sense of it, even if you don't understand every single word which is yeah, always fantastic. nice. Fantastic, fantastic, yeah. Okay, so, Oli, I wanted to ask you just briefly about your, your own blog. What are, you, what are you up to? And what is your favorite medium for communicating with people? What's your blog like? Do you write a lot? Do you talk? Do you have a podcast, videos? Uh, what, what, you know, what's it like over there? Um, it's pretty cool over there. <laughs> At um, IWTYAL.com. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a pretty cool website. Um, I... I I, I write once a week. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I have recently been having quite a lot of guest posts because I've been very busy with, with some other stuff. But I, I'm changing my tact all the time. I mean, I, I'm, at the moment, I'm kind of writing about how I'm learning um, Arabic. Uh, so I, I, I tend to try to focus on very pra- 